Amen. Do you ever think about the ability that you have to hear? The ability to hear is an amazing gift, one that we often take for granted. We are surrounded by all kinds of sounds, yet we're able to process them and to make sense of them. Proverbs 12, excuse me, 20 verse 12 tells us that the hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. They're incredible features to our hearing that are astounding. Did you know that there are three bones in your middle ear that are the smallest bones in your body? They're so small that you can put all three of them on a penny. You have inside in the inner ear part uh, 20,000 hairs that contribute to the amplification and transmission of sound to the brain. Of the five senses that we have, hearing is the first one that develops. In fact, babies in the mother's womb are already able to detect the mother's voice. Incredible. We have this amazing gift to hear. But the ability to hear only takes us so far. Not only do we need to process the sounds that move in our heads, but we also need to understand and to respond to the messages that we are hearing from them. For example, in Revelation, Jesus has given messages to each of the seven churches. And as he closes the seven churches, in every case, he says these words, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Christ is speaking to these churches. And again, he, he wants us to do more than just simply to hear sounds bouncing around in our head. But he wants us to respond to the word that he is speaking. As we've gone through these seven churches, we've seen that they cover a, a spectrum of spiritual strength. At rock bottom, what is determinative of a church's spiritual strength is its ability to hear the Word of God and then respond to it. That is what will help shape and mold the church, whether or not it is truly a strong church. My prayer is that we will have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to our church today, and that we will grow in our resolve to hunger and long to hear and respond more and more in the days to come. So let me invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 3 as we continue our series. As we've said before, John has been given this remarkable vision of the glorified, risen Jesus, and Jesus tells him to make, uh, he's commissioned him to write a book of Revelation. This is what we have in front of us. And specifically, he's given a message to each of these seven churches that are located in Asia Minor. And we know that this, this number seven symbolizes fullness and perfection. So Jesus is not only just talking to these specific churches, but churches for all time and places. And he wants us to hear what he's saying to them. These seven messages follow a similar pattern. There's four parts. Jesus will give, number one, an address to each of the angels of the church. Then he gives a word of affirmation as he encourages the church and the works that they are doing. Then he gives an admonition as he, as he warns and exhorts the church to continue to press on and need be repent from where they have fallen astray. And then he gives a word of assurance that those who conquer, those who follow Christ to the end, will be rewarded. And he gives all these different descriptions of what we'll enjoy in the new creation. 
By the way, these things that we've seen in these two, two chapters of the seven churches, all these different rewards are going to show up again when we go to Revelation 21 and 22. And there's this full-blown description of the new creation, all these same things. So these are little previews, little nuggets that are going to show up in full form later at the end of the book. Revelation, by the way, is just an incredibly well-crafted book. It's just such a marvel to read it. So this week we're going to explore the message to the church in Laodicea, the last of the seven churches. Now, the city of Laodicea, just a little bit of background of it, it was about 50 miles from Philadelphia. It was named because King Antiochus II named it after his wife. By the time of Revelation, Laodicea was a very prosperous city. It was a wealthy city. It was a banking center. Um, it had a very nice trade route location. It was known for its textile industry. The city was also known for its ophthalmology school, which was famous, and also ISAL. I'm not just rattling off kind of random facts that you could use on your Jeopardy game or whatever. Um, these will come up a little bit later, as we'll see in the message. So what will Jesus say to the church in Laodicea? Well, he says to start his address in verse 14. And to the church of the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So Jesus is the amen. He is the amen. What does that mean? Well, amen is a Hebrew word that came over into the Greek language, and it simply means so be it, truly, right? It was a way that people would hear something truthful, and they would affirm it by saying what? Amen, okay? And so we say amen, but Jesus is the amen. He is the amen. As he goes on to say, he is faithful and true. Jesus testifies. And what he says is true. He's going to talk about the spiritual condition of this church in Laodicea. And it's, it's interesting, their assessment of themselves was different than what Jesus says. But we know that what Jesus says is what is actually true. He is the amen. It also said there he's the beginning of God's creation. He's the one who began the creation. Not that he begins since he's fully God. Revelation 22, 13, Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So that's how Jesus addresses the, the angel there to the church. Now, normally after this, he would give an affirmation. He does this with the other churches, except for Sardis. But here, he goes right over the affirmation and goes right to the admonition. Because these two churches were the weakest, spiritually speaking. Let's see what Jesus says to them. He says, I know your works. You are neither hot, excuse me, cold nor hot. Would you, would you, that you are either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So Jesus says that he wishes that they were either hot or cold, not lukewarm. See, why does he phrase it like that? What is he getting at? Well, I think his point is that hot water is beneficial and cold water is beneficial, but lukewarm water really is not beneficial. And what he's getting at here is that, you know, hot water, when you're really cold, will warm you up. If you've got aches and pains, hot water can be like soothing to you and kind of get rid of those. Cold water refreshes you when you're hot. But lukewarm water doesn't have a purpose here. Now, when we know a little bit about the historical background, it really kind of fleshes out exactly what Jesus was getting at here. You see, the church in Laodicea was very familiar with lukewarm water. You see, they didn't have a natural water supply. And so they had a nearby river, but you couldn't drink the, river, the water from that river. 
And so what they had to do is that they had to pipe in water. There were two nearby towns. There was Colossae, which had a cold mountain spring, so they had the cold water. But then there was another town nearby called Hierapolis. They had hot springs. And so Laodicea would pipe in that water from from Hierapolis, but it was five miles to get there. And so by the time that hot water got all the way to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. By the way, you might have heard it taught that Jesus wished that the church was either hot or cold in the sense that they were on fire for Jesus or were kind of against Jesus. That way Jesus would know where they stood. I don't think that's accurate based on kind of what we see here on the historical background. Nor do I think Jesus ever wants people, his church to be against him. Okay, I think it makes better sense to see it this way, that this church had a lack of value and benefit because it was lukewarm spiritually, just like water. And likewise, Jesus goes on to talk about this when he says that he would spit them out of his mouth. The, the, a lot of Sians are probably familiar with spitting lukewarm water out of their mouths. Jesus says, I'm going to spit them out of his mouth, meaning he's going to reject them. Those are powerful words, aren't they? But we shouldn't be surprised because we've seen this before so far in the book of Revelation. Remember in the church of Ephesus, Jesus warned them, if you don't repent, I'm going to come and take away your lampstand, meaning I'm going to close you down. I'm going to shut you down. He told the church at Pergamon, Thyatira, they were allowing false teachers. He said, if you don't do something about it, I'm going to wage war against you. And and you're allowing this, these these, uh, false teachers, I'm going to come against them. He told the church at Sardis he would come to them like a thief in the night, meaning unexpectedly. Now, using a different analogy, Jesus again speaks of judgment coming to the church. We need to have it firmly etched in our minds that Jesus is really zealous for his church. Amen? And if it doesn't honor him, he will come in judgment against it. So why does Jesus describe them as lukewarm? Let's keep reading along. He says, for you say, I am rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So outwardly, the church would say, hey, we're doing well. We're prosperous, right? The city was prosperous. Apparently, the church was prosperous. They were rich. They were healthy. They didn't really need anything. Jesus comes along and has a much different assessment of how they are spiritually. He says they're poor, blind, and pitiable. In God's eyes, he is far more concerned about your spiritual condition than your health condition and your financial condition. He cares about those things, but your spiritual condition matters much more to God. Do you believe that? For example, God would rather you live for him now with everything you have than to have perfect health and be half-hearted. He'd rather you live for him and make half the amount of money. Remember the church at Smyrna from chapter 2? They were financially poor because of persecution. But Jesus said, look, you're spiritually rich. Our spiritual condition matters much more than our physical, excuse me, our financial and our physical health. God cares about those things, but he is much more concerned about our spiritual condition. Verse 18, Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen 
and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So again, now you see why I brought it up. Laodicea was known for these things, right? It was wealthy. They had textiles and garments and eye salve. All those things are great. There's nothing wrong with any of them, but they cannot satisfy the soul. Only God can do that, amen? And Jesus is saying, look, come to me and I will give you these things. Freely, abundantly. There's no end to my supply. We just need to trust God to satisfy our souls. And the last part of the admonition, Jesus says, Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him, and he with me. So because Jesus loves them, what does he say? He does, he's not going to allow them to stay in their current condition. He disciplines them. And church, this is an abiding principle that you see throughout Scripture that God disciplines the church. He disciplines his people. Does he do this because he is mean and hateful? Not at all. It's actually the exact opposite. He does it because he is loving. He wants us to see us grow spiritually. And so therefore, he disciplines his church so that we will respond and turn to him more and more. For example, example, Hebrews 12, 10 to 11 says, He disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful root fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So Jesus is going to discipline the church of Laodicea so that they will be zealous and repent. By the way, parents, this is another great reminder that we need to discipline our children. We don't do so out of vengeance or anger, but we do so to create in them a heart full of repentance so that God will come and bring salvation to their hearts and that they will grow in godliness. Amen? Next, Jesus gives that famous image of him standing at the door and knocking. This is a very famous image, very popular verse. But sometimes it gets interpreted improperly. For example, sometimes it's used in an evangelistic fashion. But keep in mind, this is not Jesus' audience. Who's he talking to? He's talking to a church, right? So certainly there were some there who weren't Christians, but Jesus is talking to the church. He's knocking on the church's door. Moreover, sometimes this is taught in such a way that Jesus is seen as a traveler, a guest, and he's trying to visit somebody's home. But actually, I think it's the other way around, knowing the cultural background. Jesus isn't visiting the home. He owns the home. He owns the home, and he's coming to knock on the door, and he's waiting for the servants there to open the door, those who are alert. You see a similar analogy in how Jesus talks about his second coming. Let me read Luke chapter 12, where he applies this same imagery. He says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may be open, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table. And he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or the third or finds them awake, blessed are those servants. So as the owner of the house, Jesus returns home. The alert servants hear the door knocking and they go and welcome him in. Jesus comes inside 
And not only does he sit down with them, but he actually serves them. That's amazing, isn't it? And especially in this context, in this culture, where when you had a meal with someone, it wasn't just grabbing a burger real quick and out the door. There was a way of really building bonds and fellowship with that person. So all that to say, Jesus is telling the Laodicean church that, look, you need to repent. I'm knocking on the door. I'm ready for you to receive me in. I'm ready for you to come awake and to stop being lukewarm and to receive me into the church and respond the way I'm calling you to respond while there is still time. Then he gives an assurance in verses 21 to 22. says, To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as they also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So did you get this? Not only does Christ welcome us, welcome us so that we can fellowship with him, but also so that we can reign with him. Isn't that remarkable? Reign with him. It says he's going to grant that we would sit on the throne with him. He's alluded to this earlier already in, in Revelation several times. You remember he told the church in Thyatira that he is going to give them authority over the nations. It appears all throughout Revelation, this idea that the church is already reigning in some sense with Christ and it will culminate when he returns. We see it in other places outside of Revelation. 2 Timothy 2.12 says, If we endure, we will also reign with him. This is astounding to think about. We don't ponder this enough. You know, when we get to Revelation 4 and 5, we're given this glimpse in the throne room of heaven where God is reigning. And it's just like astounding to comprehend and to know that somehow you're going to be with him in all of that. There's really just no words to describe how wonderful that's going to be. And so unworthy are we. But yet that's just the nature of God to include us and draw us into what he is doing. Absolutely unbelievable. Well, let me close here with a few words. As I said at the beginning, we need to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus wants us to not only hear, process these sounds in our minds, but he wants us to respond to what we have heard. Let me give us three ways I'd like us to respond here this morning. The first is this, assessment. Assessment. We are very susceptible to self-deception, just like what was going on here with the church of the Odyssey. They thought they were fine, right? They thought they had it all together. Jesus comes along and has a totally different impression of what is actually the case. We are very susceptible. We tend to have a tendency to think of ourselves more highly than is actually the case. Social scientists point out that we have a very inflated view of ourselves than is warranted. For example, when we succeed at something, we attribute it to internal factors. When we fail at something, we attribute it to external factors. Think about it. When you take a test and you do well, what do you think? <laughs> I'm, I'm so smart. I studied so hard. Boy, I really dissected those questions. Or even if you know that's not the truth, you'll still say, you know what, I'm a really good guesser. But if you do not do well on the test, what do you say? Well, he never told us to be on the exam. 
The instructions were unclear. There was a guy behind me smacking gum the whole time. I was too cold. I was too hot. Never will you actually look at yourself, will you? We have an amazing ability to deceive ourselves. And it spills over into our relationship with God. Where we sometimes think different things than is actually the case. We need honest assessment. We need a mirror for our soul. And we're not going to find it at Amazon. This is something only God provides. We need God to assess us. Psalm 139, verse 23 to 24 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. You say, well, how does God do this? He does it by Scripture. He does it through Scripture. There's really no other way. With Scripture, we get to see who God is and what He wants for our lives. We have this transcendent and truthful voice speaking to us and assessing our lives. So we need to hear from Scripture and place ourselves under its teaching and assessment of our lives to evaluate our lives in light of Scripture. And we need to give God time to do this. Not just a quick little snippet and then we're on our way, but to really soak up Scripture and our lives in light of them. To help us, I want to encourage each of us uh, to participate. Uh, We're going to pass out at the end of the service a five-day renewal guide. We've used these guides before. They're really excellent because they have a theme for each day. They have all kinds of questions, probing questions that we all need to ask ourselves, and then just tons of Scripture to guide us along. And my hope is, is that in the next week and a half, we will do this, and then come together when we celebrate Good Friday, what Jesus did for us on the cross, and then maybe share some of the ways that we have been renewed this last week and a half as we have assessed ourselves in light of Scripture. The second response I would encourage us to do is dependence. The Laodicean church was very self-sufficient, very prosperous. And this is a very powerful temptation for the church in America, to think that because we might have more wealth or to think that we have this independent mindset that we can kind of do church and we can advance the kingdom in our own strength. We are so foolish if we think so. We need a very firm reminder that we can only serve and do things with a radical dependence on God. We owe our very existence to God. Amen? The very fact that we're breathing right now is the grace of God. All of the gifts and abilities and blessings with family and friends and foods and so forth, where does all that come from? It comes from God. The ability to make a difference for God's glory and His kingdom, that all comes from God. Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I don't know why that's hard for us to soak into our brains. But we literally literally can do nothing apart from God. So let me encourage you, as you start each day, give each day to God. The whole day. It's his day. Not just, Lord, I'm going to plant every inch of it out, every minute out, and I hope you just bless it. But no, it's his day. Let me figure out how he wants me to serve him today. 
how I can come alongside and be part of his kingdom. A glad surrender, a glad dependence on God. It is his glory, not ours, that we're seeking. We need true dependence on God. And then the last thing I want to encourage us is vigilance. No matter where church is spiritually, it can end up as an apathetic, lukewarm church. I'm sure at some point the Laodicean church was strong, but it drifted somewhere along the way. And so too can any church drift and become lukewarm and apathetic. Same thing can happen to our church. We have a responsibility. And I know, yes, leaders have a special responsibility, and God calls them to take charge and to take initiative and so forth. That's what they're called to do. But if you notice, these letters are written to the entire church, aren't they? Not just the leaders. So let me challenge you. Will you take the initiative to making sure that our church thrives in the days to come? Sometimes people say that a church is either in decline, recline, or incline. It's upon all of us to make sure that the church is in incline. Will you take that responsibility today? You, as an individual, coming along, part of our church, you matter immensely. Every single person has a valuable part to play in making sure that our church is on the incline. Amen? Finally, I just want to give someone today the opportunity to become a Christian from what you have heard. You know, earlier I spoke of Laodicea and their incredible eye care, you know, that they were well known for. Thankfully, we've come a long way since then in our eye care. Amazing what people can do. Read this past week about a woman. Her name was Rose Crawford. She had been blind for 50 years. And doctors were able to restore her sight through a surgery. Unbelievable. Such a great story. Sure, she was so happy. But there's kind of a sad part to the story. The sad part is, is that she could have experienced it 20 years earlier. The surgery was available back then. The doctor said she just, quote, she just figured there was nothing that could be done about her condition. That's kind of sad, isn't it? Likewise, perhaps you're sitting here thinking, there's really nothing that can be done about my life, right? I'm just in this condition. There's nothing that can be done about this kind of nagging sense of guilt or bitterness, alienation from God, lack of purpose. Fear of death. That's all you know. You think that's all that there is. Can I just say as strongly as I know how, that is not the case at all. God has something different for you. Are you listening? He has something different for you. He has good news for you. He has great news for you. It's what's called the gospel. We need to understand this gospel and believe it. Because it transforms your life. And he doesn't want you to keep waiting and waiting and think there's nothing that can be done. He's given you everything that you need. If you'll simply understand this message and believe it in your life. You say, what's the message? The message is that God has created you for a purpose. 
He wants to know you. He wants you to worship him. He wants to have a relationship with you. But our sin causes alienation from God. And because God is perfect and just and righteous, he can't just let that sin slide. There's going to be punishment for that sin. We know that in our hearts, that God is a just judge. And God could have just left us that way, but he didn't. He didn't. Jesus came to this world and lived that perfect life that none of us live. And he died on the cross to take our place, to die for our sins, to take the wrath of God. And then he rose from the dead to show that death was not victorious, that there was hope for humanity. There was no reason to fear death anymore because Jesus had conquered it. And he gives this good news available to anyone who will hear it today and say, you know what? I'm ready for this. What do I need to do? Jesus tells us very clearly, we need to repent of our sins, to turn from our sins, to realize we're going down a wrong path and say, you know what? I need to turn to Christ, live for him. And I need to believe in him, that he is who he says he is. He's God in human flesh who died on the cross to pay for my sins. I am trusting him as my savior and my Lord. The Bible says when that takes place, you're forgiven of all of your sin. And you're promised eternal life with God. All of these wonderful promises that we've seen in Revelation will come to pass in your life. Let me encourage you today, urge you today, to respond to this good news, to hear what might be, be, what might be spoken to your heart today, and to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. Don't let another day go by. Don't think this life, all this... The struggle and turmoil and agony that I'm going, this is the way that it always is. It's all I've ever known. No, God has something different for you. Believe in the great, glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And your life will be forever changed. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would just give us ears to hear what your spirit has spoken to our church this morning. I pray that each heart and mind will respond today. Lord, if it's someone here today who's never believed in Christ for the first time, that, Lord, the pieces would have fallen in place, that their hearts would be broken, but yet turning to you to find grace and forgiveness and healing. Lord, I pray that they would trust you for salvation. And Lord, we as a church, we pray that you would help us to be vigilant, not falling back into lukewarmness, to come with a radical dependence upon you, Lord, not in our own strength. And Lord, we do pray for this next week and a half that all of us would seek you fervently for a time of renewal. Lord, breathe fresh on us. Revive us again, we pray. Lord Jesus, we love you and we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.